Hello everyone! To complement our previous heat injury lecture, this is a capsule summary for the lecture last month on accidental hypothermia, or cold injury. Uh, the idea is to get these things out closer to the actual didactic lecture uh, to help with recall and getting those core facts into the long-term memory. So here we go, five key points in about five minutes. Five minutes. Point number one, 30 is the magic number. Uh, that's 30 degrees Celsius. In cardiac arrest, there's no distinguishable benefit for drugs below 30 degrees Celsius. When the patient's core temperature is below 30, you're not really given much of this. That includes epi, it includes your RSI meds, and it includes antiarrhythmic medications. Remember, all those drugs are still going to be in the bloodstream when that patient finally regains good pulses, gets warmer. Uh, try not to turn them into a chemistry set that's going to become a mess when all those drugs become active at the same time later on in rewarming. Shocking, defibrillation may not work below 30 degrees Celsius. The AHA guidelines say it's worthwhile to attempt defibrillation, but there's not convincing evidence that multiple attempts are going to help. The treatment of these arrhythmias is really the rewarming. No one is called dead below 30 degrees Celsius. You're not dead unless you're warm and dead, as they say. Uh, it is therefore our target temperature before we can really assess someone in cardiac arrest and call them dead or alive. When someone comes in with a painful or painless, potentially frostbitten extremity, as you rewarm them, you're going to need to wait 30 minutes, again 30, after a warming to really evaluate the extremity and determine how much inflammation, redness, pain, how much damage you've really got. It's also the temperature below which you stop being able to shiver. Good board question right there. 30 degrees, 30 is the magic number. Point number two to remember is a practical one. How you measure the temperature matters. Tympanic, oral, bladder measurements, they're all notoriously inaccurate representations of core temperature. Uh, we are intuitively trained in this with the tympanic and the oral temperatures. We always never trust them, but we're taught to trust the bladder temps, uh, especially when we put these temp foleys in for sepsis. Just remember, in environmental hypothermia, there's a cold diuresis that occurs, and the temps in the bladder can be spuriously low than the core temperature. Go rectal after you're sure the vault is free of frozen poop. You've got to go in at least six centimeters. An esophageal temperature is great, but it's not usually stocked in the ED. For the long-term resuscitation of frozen cardiac arrest, calling the ICU for this is a good idea early on. Point number three. Uh, in the peri-arrest or arrested severely hypothermic patient, the VBG is just as good as an ABG. There's good evidence on this. But you have to remember that the gas has to be uncorrected for temperature. What does that mean? Well, when the lab runs a gas, they warm it up. They bring it up to the common temperature every time of 37 degrees Celsius. That's because gases have different solubilities in the blood at different temperatures. The lab takes the blood that's been sitting at room temperature and brings it up to simulate the actual concentrations of gases in that blood in the body. So it makes sense that we analyze the gas at the actual body temperature. Now there's some controversy here, but the most recent evidence suggests that it's best to do it at the temperature at which it's drawn, the actual cold body temperature. And if asked on the boards, that's probably the textbook answer. In the same vein, yeah, pun intended, your lab work will also be heated by the lab back up to body temperature before they run your labs. You'll find a normal PT, INR, LFTs. Well, don't let this fool you. 
there is a severe coagulopathy with cold injuries. None of the little proteins in the coagulation pathway are going to work. They can't change their shape to do their little enzymatic job. So when these patients are cold, they do have a coagulopathy, even though the lab makes it look normal. Point number four, rewarming techniques. Remember that no one is dead until they're warm and dead, so it's our job to warm them. And this has to be done with more than just a bear hugger and warm fluids when they're in cardiac arrest. If your center has ECMO or bypass, this is really the standard that you want to do. There is strong supporting data of good patient outcomes with this invasive approach, especially for these really sick patients. If you don't have this, bladder irrigation, gastric irrigation, closed thoracic lavage with multiple chest tubes, or peritoneal lavage with multiple tubes are all going to be your best bet. Remember that if you're doing invasive chest tubes, stay away from the left chest. That pericardium is easily irritated when cold, and this gives you more arrhythmia problems as you're trying to save the patient. Point number five. The last thing to remember about hypothermia is that it can be caused by more than just environmental exposure. Remember that a dropping temperature can just as easily be an indicator of the dysregulated immune system response in sepsis. And as you come out of the summer into the fall and all of your hypothermia patients are due to sepsis, remind yourself that low core temperatures are at a higher chance to be due to environmental exposure in the colder months. Don't get caught without exposure and accidental hypothermia on your differential. As always, thanks for listening, guys. Send me questions, comments, emails. Love to discuss everything. Just stop by the office.